0: Every one of these episodes is packed, full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to George Bevis, founder and former CEO of Tide, the successful challenger bank now used by over 400,000 businesses in the UK. After stepping down as CEO in 2018, George started CanDo, the startup incubator for tackling big social problems. I first met George when I sent him a cold email back in 2016. I was just starting out searching for advice and ever since George has been open and generous to me with his time. In our conversation we discuss the conveyor belt of opportunity and the role that luck plays in our working journey. We explore identity at work and the extent to which our working selves are separate and distinct from our true identities we discuss how stress can lead to growth, as well as the concept of optimising for legacy, which has led George to Found Can Do. And George runs me through the different phases we pass through as we search for our best work, as well as how courage and ego do and don't benefit us along the way. How did your parents' parents influence your choice of work?
1: I didn't know my parents' parents. Um, So on my father's side, they were all dead before I was born. On my mother's side, um, uh, my grandfather and his wife died uh, quite early in my life, sort of when I was three or four or something. However, um, I think there is some influence there, more than zero. So on my father's side, uh our background, if you go back a few generations, is quite traditionally working class on that side and it was it was manual work, they were gas fitters and similar. And um so there was a, a respect for uh well, I guess now I would call being an operator, doing real work, uh, making real, real stuff happen, not just sort of existing in the Mandarin class, being a you know a lawyer or an accountant or something. Um, and on my mother's side, um, opposite, my dad was so my grandfather was the chief scientist in the Royal Navy uh, in the Second World War, um, and was a smart guy. So he absolutely was part of the sort of Mandarin Eight. Um, uh, and, um, so I guess if you put those two influences together, there is, um, uh, a comfort with the intellectual side of, um, what we do professionally and sort of thinking through, uh, how the world is changing and the rest of it. Um, and a, uh, that sort of, um, Dexterity about, you know, being willing to contemplate a wide variety of possibilities, but also with a deep respect for uh, just going, doing stuff and making real things happen.
0: Did that filter down to your parents as well?
1: Um, maybe. Uh, I think I was certainly never explicit, but probably implicit, yes.
0: And how does. How's that? motivated you at different parts of your journey i mean we may at times want to kind of right the wrongs of our chartered or we may we may wish to do things that our parents wanted us to do or inherit the work that they did previously were any of those applicable to you
1: so firstly knowing that my granddad was a very senior guy in the navy definitely gave me that confidence that uh, it was achievable to achieve significant things. Uh, And also that um, invention was a a plausible way to make things Mm -hmm. happen. Um, And what he did was to invent stuff in the Navy. Uh, I don't know what he invented, but I'm sure it's fairly you know, fruity stuff given the context of, of what, what Britain was doing at that time um, versus his enemies. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, so there was that um, confidence that uh, great stuff could be achieved and it could be achieved by invention. Um, uh, and uh, my father was, uh, I mean, he ran his own business. So you, you could argue he was a, a sort of entrepreneur of sorts. Um, so yeah, also a comfort, uh, going and setting my own thing up.
0: It's amazing that I didn't know that your father would run his own business and then you build a company that helps small businesses get more time and money back.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's actually, there's a strong tradition of entrepreneurism on both sides of the family. Um, so my dad set up a, a three person, um, uh, 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 sort of personal financial advice business. Um, my... Uh, mother's side of the family, almost nobody on that side of the family has ever been able to hold down a proper job. Um, mm. and, uh, so, you know, there's all manner of, I mean, my uncle sold rocking horses for most of my childhood, um, uh, at sort of, um, fairs and, um, his children have set up lots of different businesses. Um, uh, yeah. So, so it was, it was quite normal in my family to, to think about setting up your own thing, uh, mainly because we're not a particularly employable bunch of people.
0: Um, besides from your family did where you grew up and your place of childhood and and coming of age affect your choice of work
1: in one way yes so i didn't actually expect to create my own thing um until i was in my the start of my 20s um so uh as a kid, inexplicably, my father had become convinced that I would end up being what he called a merchant banker, which we would call an investment banker, which is an appalling thing to say to any child. But somehow, <laughs> in his mind that that was what was going to happen, and that was the personality he thought I had. Um, and I, I didn't have strong views of that nature, but I, I definitely it hadn't really occurred to me that I would set my own thing up. But then um, I got lucky that in 1999, I was a student. And I had a bit of time on my hands uh, in the summer, so I went off to New York, and that was obviously the height of the dot-com boom. And the whole of New York was absolutely plastered in advertising for all the different internet businesses in a way that I'd never seen before. Um, and I came back to London and sort of told everyone, wow, wow this was an incredible thing taking place. Um, and uh, it alerted me to this opportunity to build your own thing uh, in a way that wouldn't otherwise have happened. And subsequently, um, I spent my finals term at university instead of revising, um, and as a result where it got quite a bad degree result, um, instead of revising, uh, setting up an online contact details directory for um, people at my own university and another similar university that was a sort of, um, uh, much more basic precursor to what facebook ultimately ended up being four years later unfortunately um nobody had digital cameras when we did our thing so there was actually there was no point in logging in in the way that there was with facebook because you couldn't check out if other students were hot which as you remember was the real reason why facebook took off in the early days so um so it, it it inexplicably didn't turn me into a, a near trillionaire. But um, uh, nevertheless, it was, it, it was definitely... Yeah, I got lucky that uh, as a youngster, I got to observe that entrepreneurialism was a path. And maybe if I'd been a student at a different time, that just never would have happened.
0: Mm. Did you take any of that and use that luck in a proactive way of sorts? Like almost surround yourself and with certain people or put yourself in circumstances later on where it wasn't quite so much about luck but you're able to realize that your surroundings would have that kind of impact on your work
1: to say something i'm sure you've heard lots of people lots of times uh because it's such a cliche but there is that whole thing about how you make your own luck but i think how that the permutation of that for me has been um you can think of life as a sort of conveyor belt of opportunity that, that passes by you. Um, and it, those of us who make entrepreneurism work are um, more inclined than the average to leap on the opportunity when it comes past uh, and to do something with it, um, even when we know there are strong reasons not to. Um, and... Uh, so uh in that sense I, I guess there was a um a sense of the willingness to capture opportunity uh which um yeah i started getting into a ha- the, habit of, had the habit of it uh, as a an undergraduate
0: and and i didn't stop i'd love to dive into that phrase that you just use, even though there are strong reasons not to because It kind of gets to the heart of all of our decision making when it comes to work. You're constantly trying to work out what opportunities are large, but naturally those opportunities might come with a healthy amount of risk associated to it. Have you developed a way of working through those decisions and knowing which opportunities on the conveyor belt to jump onto and which ones not to?
1: Um, I think I'm halfway there and I should be better than that by now, given that um, I now run an incubator that will launch several things a year, um, but we're not. And I know, interestingly, that um, other serial entrepreneurs will usually tell you that even though they are very experienced and have had big wins in the past and all the rest of it, their success rate is still less than 50% on any marginal activity, and mine certainly is. Um, so I'm not that good at it. but. In so far as I have developed a framework for commercial initiatives, Um, it's about my confidence that I can do customer acquisition at a affordable price, um, and my sense that margins will be high and and pay for the customer acquisition. Um, uh, Those things, require a bit of research and so what I have learned to do is when you first have what seems like a good idea and we're all familiar with the experience that you have it and it's on a saturday night and you're just you're beaming you're so excited by this incredible idea that you think you've had and uh, learning to be quite skeptical about that I've I've observed repeatedly that ideas I've sat on for over a year and done nothing with have a tendency to get much better in the process Um, Uh, For reasons I can't easily explain, Um, it just seems to be the case that you sort of spot things you haven't quite thought of that are the the constraints and then you iterate them more. Tide, as an example, um, I had the idea of Tide something like three years or four years before it kicked off. I actually couldn't launch Tide because it was clearly going to be very, very expensive, and I wasn't credible to raise the amount of money necessary to do it. And I only had the chance to get back into it when I reconnected with um, a uh, much more credible um, investor who was willing to be the sort of early anchor um, and, and co-founder in it. And that gave me a chance. And in the interim, I had years in which this idea had been sort of swilling around my brain lot, alongside lots of other ideas.
0: It's the blessing of time in some way. Yeah, for sure interestingly when you anyone who knows anything about your story will know why you're interested in making sure that the the CAC and the LTV work properly together and that's very much a kind of uh, a nurture state of learning where you've been th- you've been uh, you've been through it yeah. <laughs> so naturally you're going to be aware of it yeah Is there a part to your decision-making when you decide to go with this opportunity in the conveyor belt or or that one that's not been learned through experience, but is actually just more about George and what you choose?
1: I would answer the question differently. I I think there's there's things I choose not to do because I'm just not passionate about the space and that happens all the time. Um, And actually right now, interestingly, uh, one of our companies that my incubator does software that makes mobile phones easier for older people to use. Um, and that was essentially an irresponsible passion project for me, because I couldn't <laughs> get a phone that my mother could make work. And uh, she's now got a phone running our software, and it works really well for her. Uh, and in fact, just last weekend, um, she something gone wrong with her landline in our home. And so she phoned me in a bit of a state, from the mobile that i given her, that runs our software. Now that's wonderful, um, but none of it actually justifies going and and you know it, the, the enormous investment in making all this software and and the business that we're building around it. Uh, and when I started that business, I, I had been um, ill-disciplined about kicking it off without a particularly well thought-through point of view on go-to-market, because I was so keen that this thing just should exist and it seemed to be such a big need broadly surely the uh, go-to-market would emerge and we've ended up with what now looks like it will be an effective go-to-market which is um, licensing that software to manufacturers internationally but um, uh, yeah in that particular instance I definitely launched a venture um, driven off of a personal passion um, without so much certainty what the go-to-market was going to be but you probably shouldn't do that
0: <laughs> when have you felt furthest away from doing your best work
1: uh, when i've not been an entrepreneur um i've had you know, i spent a fair amount of my career doing boring corporate jobs um mainly in and around retail banking which i had no passion for i just fell into it because i'd not done very well in my degree and i couldn't get a glam job and um and, and retail banks uh, were willing to pay me, so I need to pay the rent, and that, that just sort of happened. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wasn't a great employee. I mean, I, depending on which company, which set of people managers I worked for, you know, they would score me somewhere between two out of 10 and seven out of 10, um, but never higher than seven, any of them, uh, I think, um, uh, because I was, you know, just not into it. <laughs> just didn't really
0: care very much. Why was it that you didn't care so much about it? Like, why is it that your natural nature doesn't fit that?
1: I think the um, the frustration of having to uh, dance to someone else's tune um, is, is probably at the core of it. Uh, I mean, I started my career selling credit cards. I was 22 or 23, well, I say I started my, actually I started my career by for six weeks being an accountant i was sacked quite rightly for failing the same exam twice in six weeks um and then i went to go and work for capital one in nottingham selling credit cards um and uh i would never had a credit card before then in fact very few of my friends had credit cards because straight out of uni it's not normal to have a credit card. I really barely knew what a credit card was um, and I wasn't convinced it was something that people necessarily should have uh, um, and indeed there are lots of aspects of the credit card industry that one wouldn't feel super comfortable about uh, if they're not managed correctly. So it was very hard to have us in any sort of mission-driven sense that we were doing good for the world. Um, uh, which is not to say, by the way, that that was an evil company. It wasn't at all. What we did professionally was not evil, but it, it just wasn't something that one would feel particularly excited about. Um, and uh, you know, in the way that all substantial corporates end up with, it had a fairly sort of anodyne culture where everyone was, you know, polite and a bit boring to each other, and it just, you know, lacked creativity. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was just hard to get energized
0: by that feels like there are two bits to it one naturally you just don't want to be part of another company and and kind of dance to your own tune but another part to it where and you can see this right think that you've done it there's a a desire to do something that actually helps someone else and but it's to a different degree like not many people start a kind of social incubator where I'm going to actually tackle the problems that other people aren't tackling and that I've I, w- I wonder where that comes from. There, I mean, there are so many people that don't want to work for someone else and end up trying to be an entrepreneur, but most of those people will end up just trying to solve a problem rather than solve a key problem in society.
1: Yes. Um, it was worth noting I set up this incubator only after I had gone and made money by creating Tide, not before. Um, so, you know, you need the cash first. And once you made the cash... The cash is less interesting to you. So um, then mm. the question of what is interesting to you? And actually, I i mean, I still find it mystifying that there aren't more people in my situation doing things like this, having, having their own incubator to do socially responsible work because I definitely find that the affluent entrepreneurs that I know are typically... Um, maybe I observe a bias sample of this, but they're, they're very willing, they're very keen to help the world out in whatever way they can think is uh, useful. Um, and they typically enjoy the earlier stages more than the later stages. And if you put those things together, it seems to me obvious you would create an incubator because, you know, why not? And what could be more fun than that? So I don't really understand why other people don't do it. And I can't easily uh, therefore explain why, what it is that is special about me that it meant I, I wanted
0: to Throughout your journey, you would have gone through so many moments of trauma and stress and difficulty naturally that's associated with an entrepreneurial journey and risk. How has that stress and uh, difficulty positively informed your choice of work? Um, and, And has it done the opposite? Has it also been negative?
1: So there definitely have been lots of moments of stress. Um... The positive thing that comes out of entrepreneurial stress is that after everything's gone wrong so many times, you get better at anticipating the ways that will go wrong in the future. Um, I find that uh, paranoia is something that people who haven't been entrepreneurs don't have to the same degree. Typically, um, some people do. So you know, people who've done 40 years in other, well, sorry, 20 years in other jobs where they've just been beaten up constantly by their seniors in very high-pressured environment. They also have it as well, but you, bait, somebody needs to beat you up enough times that you know where to look for the punches that are coming in. Uh, and um, uh, so that's definitely something you, you develop as a result of, of stress. Um, uh, and I guess also some ability to... Um, to contextualize things going wrong, uh, and hopefully to be able to reassure your team that the things that they're getting terribly nervous about really are not such a big deal in in the grand scheme of things. Um, but yes, I don't experience stress, and I, I don't enjoy it. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, on its own, it's not an event like there's not there's nothing good about stress. It's only a negative. It just turns out that if you
0: suffer enough of that negative, you get better at avoiding it in the future. But if, if if only the paranoid survive like Andy, Andy Grave might say then doesn't that make you unhappy?
1: No, I, th- I don't think those two things are connected uh, so a a learning in life that lots of more sophisticated more expert people than me talk about as you know is that irrespective of what you achieve you will still potentially be dissatisfied and that is still and that 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 is true. And and when you achieve the things you think will make you comprehensively elated, it turns out it doesn't work out that way. Um, uh, so, you know, the main thing is to enjoy the journey, not the destination, all of which you know. Um, none of what I've just mentioned has anything to do with paranoia. Paranoia might affect whether or not you, you achieve the thing you want to do because it de-risks it. But I don't think... Um, I mean, my life right now is, is, is uh, I do my job at CanDo. We have lots of projects. So I'm not particularly stressed if one of them goes down. In fact, I expect at any one point, most of them will end up uh, not being a big win. Um, and so I'm not stressed about that. Uh, there might be things in my personal life that I'm concerned about at any one time, but there's no reason for my work to um, cause me uh, any great amount of stress. Um, yeah, as long as I don't bankrupt myself, which is always a risk, because I, you know, um, I'm not always as responsible uh, as as um, uh, you know, maybe I ought to be. Um, as long as I don't bankrupt myself, then yeah, I, I, there's no reason why a, a level of professional paranoia would spill over into personal unhappiness.
0: And do you make a conscious effort to separate out your own identity from your work identity, or is that a natural <laughs> setting? No, but I think George? I should.
1: Uh, I'm sure I would be. Uh, um you know a lower risk leader uh, if if I did I mean I as as you may know you know I, I tweet quite a bit um and not everything I tweet is is sort of fully workplace safe uh or at least more to the point uh, you know I'll tweet opinions on things that I'm still developing which would definitely trigger um some people on some a minority of people um although if you read my you know if you read all of the thousands of tweets I've Tweeted over the years. I hope you would end up with a perspective. I'm actually quite a sort of benign, progressive sort of an individual. Um, There's no question that uh, the level of risk I take with my tweets is more than zero, and that probably means that um, uh, you know the occasionally people I might work with. Uh, or who might work for me, um, who who uh, will be concerned by something I'd said in a tweet, or indeed in in the real world—that's that's, that's a real possibility. So um, I know I don't particularly separate. Uh, I mean, I, I tell fewer fart jokes when I'm in the office than I might in the pub, but beyond that, um, I don't particularly separate. And. Um, uh, And I don't want to, I mean, I just, you know, what's the point in running your own company if you have to suppress a big part of your own identity? I I think it, you know, it it would be a rubbish way to be. And in fact, one thing, a a really wonderful example of something happened on Twitter a few weeks ago uh, that beautifully exemplified this is um, watching... Uh, I think it was Jeff Bezos sending an idea to Bill Gates and Bill, not to Bill Gates, to um, Elon Musk and Elon Musk replying saying, yes, that's a really good idea or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the scenario was. But I just thought, when do you see non-founder CEOs on Twitter just authentically discussing an idea openly and agreeing that, you know, it never happens because, um, uh, you know, the rest of the world uh, feels scared to be authentic in public, but...
0: You know, I, I don't want to live that life. When you when you reflect on work, what do you think you're optimising for? Is it happiness? Is it success? Is it legacy?
1: It's legacy. Um uh so now, in the context where thanks are tied, my my bank account is is hopefully gonna stay fine for the rest of my life. Um, All I care about is, uh, professionally, is trying to make the world, you know, to have the most impact on improving the world that I can do, Um, and fun, actually fun's in the mix too, so um, uh, I enjoy these early stage things, and I enjoy hanging around with a cool little team uh, where we get on with each other, and and we're quite, well, we're extremely authentic, if you like, with each other, and and we can get away with that without worrying about offending anyone, Um, so uh, I, th- those are, are the, the, the things but the, the, the key thing is, is, um, is, is impact which you described as legacy and is a good word for that
0: we've touched on this uh, a couple of times which is that transition from a creative environment where you're spawning ideas and you're playing around with stuff and you're having loads of fun and a slightly different environment where you're not building a product anymore but you're building a company and your experience stepping down as CEO must have been an extraordinary decision. Where did it start, and what parts of your own self were at play there talking to each other? I knew from pretty
1: early on in Tide that I wouldn't want to run it forever. Uh, And... Um, I mean, my interests are broad and not all, although I think very often entrepreneurs have broad interests, I know you have broad interests, not all entrepreneurs do, some entrepreneurs just love, uh, they want to build one business, they want it to be very big and, you know, and they, they buy their Rolls Royce and and they have a number plate that's like the name of their company and the number one on, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera and, and good for them, um, but that's not me. Uh, so, you know, I have a, uh, a degree in social sciences a masters in um, uh, economic development. Um, uh, you know, I, I read books about the state of the world for fun. So if I were locked into just running one enterprise, it would come at the the opportunity cost would be all of the other things that uh, I would like to work on, which fortunately now, thanks to CanDo, I'm able to do exactly that. So I was aware from relatively early on in Tide that um, uh, it would be more attractive to me to be able to work on a wider variety of things and things like you know not having venture capitalists to answer to and all, all that sort of stuff and, and to be able to stay at the early stage. Um, uh, I first discussed that with Ty's chairman in uh, autumn of 2017 and early 2018, we decided to kick off the, the process of, of finding the, the long-term scale-up CEO. Um, And I found um, most aspects of stepping away from the company straightforward. Um, I was relieved that my successor uh, followed exactly the same strategy that I wanted for the company. We'd had a lot of board resistance to that strategy. The board didn't understand uh, why it was necessary to invest as heavily in both um, uh marketing and product development as i had been doing um and my successor insisted on that and essentially faced down opposition from some of the idiots um who, who didn't understand that uh very effectively which is a great relief to me um so that made it a lot easier to step aside but the one thing that i did miss and find very um you know um, tough it was uh i missed all the people i've been working with so at the point that I finished running the company, I think we had about eighty-five staff, of whom everyone I had personally done final round interview with, I had chosen to let them in, and I liked all of them, even you know one or two who occasionally were a bit difficult to work with. But uh, but I did I personally liked them, and I liked having a reason to turn up and hang around them, uh, and I missed that. But the rest of it, no, I was I was pretty happy. Uh, to step away from, and certainly there is no way on earth that I want to be running the company now. It's it's a huge, complicated behemoth, and I'm um, delighted for somebody else to be doing all that.
0: Does the legacy part to it not tick at you occasionally? Where you look at it and think, ah, oh, would, my, would my legacy be more evident? Or does your that kind of quiet but nagging, ambitious tweet? twerp at you occasionally <laughs>
1: um so what it, in that case what it would look like would be you know would I want Tide to be doing some different things to what it is doing and do I think if I was in charge uh that'd be the case to which the answer is yes there I can name you know some things but they're not they're not the big things the big things what Tide does you know haven't changed so um and no the short answer is I'm working on other initiatives right now, which um, if they work uh, will have more impact on the world than um, you know, the slight tweaks to Tide's product roadmap that might happen if, if I was CEO uh, rather than someone else. Um, so uh, I'm comfortable with that allocation and it's not something I worry
0: about. One of the things that strikes me is how much your definition of your own best work has changed it almost feels like it's changing at each. It's almost like it's got phases that you've been through where you've been able to unlock that phase or that level and then move through to the next one that somehow has a different definition of what doing your best work is at that time.
1: Well, doing your best work is contextual, of course, in all cases. Uh, and um, in different you know stages of your life you have to do that is just deliver different stuff, it's the necessary thing. I think I always actually had a sense that I, in the long run, wanted to have you know a bigger impact, uh, it was always for that purpose. But at different stages, yeah, you've got to do different things. Um, in my you know early career, working for well, actually, the, the phases basically worked out as follows I so in the first few years of my career, I had to get credibility to try and be an entrepreneur, then I uh but i sort of knew that i very likely in the long run would want to be an entrepreneur and a successful one uh and then use that to have do some good for the world but first i had to get credibility before i could be an entrepreneur then i did entrepreneurship screwed it up but learned a lot of stuff then i had to stop being broke um and uh and get paid for a bit then i um had the opportunity to start something else with the credibility that I did have, and that something else was tied. And then once tied was successful, I could go on and um, and try and do other things to change the world. So, um, I, although actually I, I think there was a reasonably clear sense um, of what the end game might look like. The uh, the short term specifics um, change. You just have to adapt to uh, to the situation you find yourself in. It's a bit
0: like the was it the Stoics who had a kind of view on your work life where you would contribute more and more to society as you went through it. But you may, um, you, for example, you could be an individual contributor. I can't remember what it is, but it's like, and then you become a teacher, then you become a politician and then you become a philosopher. And it's almost like you're kind of on that arc where you, you make different contributions to society at different points depending on whereabouts you've, you've got to, and the influence that you can make. Yes. I'm
1: that's, I think it's true of lots of people, it's definitely true of me. One thing I think is very interesting and not really talked about very much is, um, uh, professionals up to the age of sort of 40 have a pretty good idea of what all the other professionals up to the age of 40 do, they work in the same workplaces and they see them doing it and whatever. Um, there's a whole, I'm 43, there's a whole set of, um, uh, people who've went through that path, were successful, and then from age sort of 45 through till 75, 80, are close to invisible while doing remarkable things. Um, and, uh, that I think is particularly undocumented. Um, and I, I, I recently been reading about one or two of them, um, uh, but often they choose to operate in, in sort of re- reasonably anonymous ways. They're no longer interested in in fame or public plaudits. Um, some are uh, still very keen to get very rich, but others have other um, aspirations. And they can exercise remarkable sort of power and influence in, in changing the world that we operate in, but in a fairly invisible way.
0: What types of things?
1: So... Um, the book that I was uh, recently reading on this was highlighting the case of um, former, well, I guess still current industrialists, but people who'd had big jobs, uh, either as CEOs or working in private equity or whatever, who were behind the um, uh, those doors in Mayfair that have no, no uh, faceplate, nameplate on them, uh, just numbers, where, um, <laughs> the sheer expense of the office itself is evidence that something is up. But then if, if you can somehow get a meeting on the inside, you discover that they have enormous stakes in in lots of, you know, significant mentions, uh, some of which you've heard of, others you haven't. They may well be controlling them, um, but they are entirely anonymous individuals. Um, similar to that, related to it, actually, is the... Um, I Also, it's interesting, if you ever look at the Sunday Times rich list, the surprising thing about... Um, Names on there is how few of them you've heard of. Uh, they are, you know, very, very often um, people who are yeah well over forty who um, control one or several substantial organisations um, that are doing significant things. Um, which you just never hear about anywhere and you never hear about the individuals or what motivates them or, or anything else. Um, I'm pretty sure that the same class of, um, I guess, power uh, would exist across other sectors in not-for-profit sectors as well. There will be individuals who are um, yeah, powerful uh, uh, and make a difference who just are not talked about very much and And we don't really understand the uh, the networks that they have and the and the uh, the the interests that they have more motivated and all a and people from whom one could learn a lot.
0: Is there any part to it where up until that that age we we're kind of going about our work because we're motivated by things external to us, but as we get slightly older, the things that we're motivated by are are purely internal, so we're not seeking that external validation and we're not more public or is it kind of a intense desire to be private and not and not seen to be flaunting wealth like why why is it that we don't have exposure to those those types of people?
1: I don't know because I don't know enough of these people and I've not asked them Um, but I suspect in my own experience it's uh, there is a point at which you have ticked a lot of the boxes you had earlier on in your life and you've learned from that what gives you satisfaction and what doesn't. And then you don't really bother with fame anymore. And also you may have even been stung by uh with visibility comes a form of accountability and you might just not be very interested in being very accountable.
0: When you project out yourself, what route do you want to go down?
1: I want the pro I, I essentially plan on doing exactly the job that I do today in fifteen, twenty years' time. Uh, I can't imagine a job that I would enjoy more than this. I hope um, by then one or a handful of our projects might have been big successes, but I will still choose to work in the
0: laboratory environment uh, in a tiny team. Hmm. I don't know whether this is something that you've consciously done, George. It may not be, but at each point when you make a decision, it it seems like you're able to kind of touch upon what the true George actually wants to do in that moment and, and make the decision. And some people have this very naturally and they follow their inclinations almost by accident and others find it a lot harder to understand and listen to their own inclinations. Um, What's it been for you?
1: Yeah, so that's right. I do have a pretty um, clear view on what I want to do at every stage. And I'm aware that lots of people don't to the same extent. I had a, a very revealing discussion um, a couple of weeks ago with uh, a friend of mine from university. Were, uh, at university, I ran the debating society, and there were three presidents and two vice presidents in the same year. And of so that community of five of us, um, uh, I've obviously had the outcomes I've had. Greg Marsh created One Fine uh, Stay and um, has, has been wildly successful that company. And I was with um, the third guy who, who's uh, one of the top guys of his generation in private equity in London. Um, and I was discussing with the third guy, why is it that of five of us, three of us have um, had these journeys since? And we both came to the view that there were two things, two attributes we had that are not universal that had helped. Um, one is that when an opportunity came past on the came past on the conveyor belt, we were willing to uh, leap on it with um, knowledge that there were reasons not to, but also knowledge that the harm we'd be doing ourselves if we were making a mistake wasn't that big and probably correctable. And if you just do enough leaps over the course of your career and they are they broadly seem like they're in the right direction then at the end of the career you're going to end up in, in the place you wanted to get to so that's number one um, and the second was interesting that we uh observed that all three of us have been um more we were just very interested in the world, and we always had been. We were the sorts of teenagers who were reading the news. And my friend was saying that he he used to read the FT, not because he was so financial, though he did end up working in finance because he was just interested in how the world works. And I, I was never particularly interested in finance stuff, but I, but, you know, I, I read The Economist and, and uh, I was interested in that. And I'm sure Greg would have been the same as well. And from an early age, we had had influences on our lives who had. Um, sponsored that sort of intellectual interest who had uh, introduced us to the fact that the sorts of grown-up topics like how the government is doing or you know why there's a war in this other part of the world isn't very well known were uh, the topics that adults talk about regularly at dinner parties. 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds talk about this stuff all the time, but most most teenagers think it's a bit foreign and distant from them, and actually we observed that we had, and that probably helped us be able to think more broadly about the opportunities um, that were available to us in the rest of our life, so we could spot those opportunities coming along the conveyor belt and then, as I mentioned, leap on them with with uh, a level of conviction, even though we weren't certain that they were they were going to work.
0: Can you cultivate that curiosity if you haven't had exposure to it at an early age?
1: Um, if you haven't had somebody else around you encouraging you to be interested, I don't know you've got a chance. Um, yes, yeah. sadly, you know, I, I think uh, unless you're exposed to the fact that it's interesting you're just not going to find out until you're a lot older. And that's, that's a great tragedy. And, you know, of course, we need schools and other environments to compensate for that when it's not available in the home.
0: What role has courage played for you?
1: A lot, actually. Um, it's always easier to have courage when you haven't got that many other great options. And uh, so... <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> said a very wise man.
1: All, all, all the courage that I have demonstrated, or a lot of it, um, can be seen in that light... Uh, yeah, as an undergraduate, I did my social networking website um, uh, because it was more interesting than studying for my exams. In retrospect, I probably should sure have studied for my exams. Um, as a uh, mid-30s professional, starting Tide, uh, actually my like day job career up to that point would be fine, but by no means amazing. Um, and... Taking a risk with other people's money, where the payoff was potentially, you know, enormous and extreme, um, uh, it was a courageous thing to do. Because the non-courageous thing to do would go and just take a regular job somewhere. But it wasn't that courageous, um, uh, given that it was mainly going to be other people's money and the payoff could be so big. Having said all of that, um, no courage is involved. I mean, uh, there was definitely courage involved. Uh, when I was running Tide and we had a fairly toxic board who um, didn't understand the importance of continuing to invest heavily in marketing product, which I and my successor both believed in very strongly, um, to essentially uh, ignore the opinions of of some venture capitalists on on that board because they were wrong and fools. Um, uh, That did take genuine courage. Um, Having said all of that, uh if you can be forward thinking about what happens if you don't demonstrate the courage you know the the place you end up in if you don't utilize the courage is potentially a worse place in the, in the medium to long term than if you do exercise courage then it's pretty easy to make decisions that would be branded as courageous by other people
0: it's almost like you're taking something emotional there but it- breaking it down into risk assessment <laughs> just it is it actually as risky as you think it is to make this decision in the moment
1: yeah i think um a really helpful framework as you know is bezos one about reversible versus unreversible decisions actually he's got two that are helpful it's that and there's the um uh the regret, the, minimization regret minimization framework. yes absolutely um if you apply both of those frameworks, then I think any decision that might get badged as courageous um, actually can be made just on purely logical ground.
0: Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Sort of way of giving yourself courage if you don't have it. Do you think that's the case in your circumstance where there's times where you have wanted that inbuilt courage and perhaps lacked it but found found the logic it strikes me that that must have been the case otherwise you wouldn't have found the the bezos logical approach to it
1: uh, actually i read about bezos after i started behaving this way um mm. so no worse way. Anyway, but but i uh so bezos gives me a useful language to talk to other people about it but no i was already um operating that way i think um i i've always been quite long-term quite forward-looking um and i guess have enough intellectual self-confidence that if I'm really quite sure that doing a thing would be counterproductive, then I will not do that thing. Uh, if it's going to be counterproductive in the long term, even if it means that I will, you know, suffer some, um, some difficulty in the short term. Um, and I, I have had it said to me as well. I think this is true. Actually. Um, it's been pointed out to me that, uh, I had a pretty stable family upbringing uh, although actually my dad did struggle professionally in in certainly in the later years of his life there was never any risk that if i completely screwed up and i was broke and all the rest of it and homeless i could always go back to my parents they would always feed me you know and not everyone has that privilege um when you do know that you've got that when you're highly aware that however bad it is it is not going to be that bad and it's solvable it's easier to have courage uh than i think people for whom you know particularly we've got dependents as well i I never at june tide had any dependents um that i had to worry about so uh the worst case wasn't going to be that bad and that makes it a lot easier to to demonstrate what would be called courage
0: can i share a confession with you and see what your observation is of course i i heard someone talking the other day about the ego and they said that there are there are two ways that your ego can get in the way one is it's clear classic it's it's too big and uh, it becomes it becomes your enemy and your downfall but the other is if you don't have enough of it because if you focus so much on trying to self develop and be better and really squash your ego out of something you begin to lose the sense of yourself and the confidence. And we all spend so much time trying to be productive and work on ourselves and constantly self-critical that times it can border on a self-sabotage where we maybe just kind of plonk that ego too far down.
1: That that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I agree. Actually, I I feel quite strongly about this topic. uh, I occasionally hear people who are younger than me banging on about growth mindset. um, And I I think it's a terrifying uh, concept. Um, because it seems to be to be um, rooted in the assumption that you're not good enough already and that you can't be. Um, And the truth is while it is accurate that, you know, age 17, I was not good enough at literally anything that would make me a useful, productive human. (laughs) Over time, I have got a bit better at some things and I'm good enough at some things and I could either spend the rest of my life stressing about that and trying to push even further, or I can just bank what I've got. And I think, you know, we'd all be happier if we were willing to bank what we got. The, the obvious example this is always talked about is the sort of Instagram mindset, people endlessly um, uh, exposing their vanity as they um, uh, encourage others to, to sort of feel inadequate. Um, none of that is, is a valuable uh, thing to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it's correct. I'm not sure ego is quite the word I would use for it, but certainly that level of um, comfort that you are uh, already the, um, uh, well, I, actually maybe the right way to put it is just to sort of accurately have a sense of, of your own capabilities um, and which ones you really care about getting better at and um, uh being comfortable that you are already good enough at the things you want to be good enough at is, is, a, is a great comfort to have.
0: To finish, can I take some of that and apply it to your your day-to-day work? When was the, the first time that you think you achieved some kind of mastery at work where you're at that point at which you've got that level of that confidence to apply?
1: yeah that's a really interesting question um, the point at which I developed the mastery was quite different to the point when i uh, was a knew that I had the mastery and they were many years apart so um, when I was building up tide, much of the experience I was having in a, in, a, in, in all the different things you have to do in building a, a company like that. Everyone else wrongly assumed was new to me because I'd not done a major venture backed startup before, but the truth is actually many years before I had a very unsuccessful retail e-commerce business. And at that time I'd been reading all the blogs uh, and all the rest of it. And, 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 you know, absorbing information from the luminaries and I had enough to chew on in that unsuccessful business to more deeply understand what made companies work, which meant that actually my execution in Tide um, was better than I realised and better than um, uh, many other stakeholders in the in the company, I think, um, uh, probably would have assumed would have been going on from a first time founder. When our little group of um, the sort of early team from Tide meet, we all um, well, sometimes talk about how uh, we made very few major mistakes in those early years, but it didn't feel like that at the time. We we were all terrified that we were getting it really, really wrong. We all knew we were winging it. and it's surprising what high proportion of the decisions we made were made in the right way, even though often there were voices off telling us to do other things, or indeed voices in the team telling us to do other things. So um, uh, the truth is, the point at which I learned the skills was when I was running the unsuccessful retail business five years previously. Um, but the point at which I could look back and say, no, I really do have these skills was um, know uh, after I'd been running time for a few years and and things have really come together.
0: Wow and I'm assuming and I think this is correct actually that you didn't know that you had acquired that type of mastery until it was it was far down far down the line and there may be people listening to this who have acquired it but just don't realize. Don't realize that they that they have because in some way they haven't had the external validation or the course of time to be able to reflect and know that it's it, it was right
1: I'm certain that's right I'm also it's worth noting as well that um even the people who uh would seem to sort of outsider's lens to be the absolute masters in any context when you work with them really really close up, you realize. You know that's all we need to and they would disagree with each other on lots of questions and and they're not that good you know so the 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 um, the the curve of expertise seems you know incredibly steep um, but at some point it, it levels off and and you don't get you know with much more, much more um, experience you don't get that much better uh and you can be very, very celebrated without necessarily being that much better than you were with, you know, a, a lot less experience. Um, so, uh, yeah. And when you're any, you know, stages before that, I feel like these people must be so much more remarkably capable and, you know, all the rest of it than you. But actually, I don't think that is that, that is always true. By the way, I've met quite a lot of very successful entrepreneurs who've had one win, and who are, I think are idiots. Um, uh, and that does, in fact, I, you know. And the fear would be that I might be one of them. Hopefully, I'm not. We'll see. I need to prove that I'm not. It's not proven yet. Um, but uh, um, it is definitely not the case that people who've, who've had a big win in, in one sector, one time, uh, have suddenly become sort of omniscient uh, on all other topics.
0: Ever since I sent you that cold email ages ago, you have been nothing but kind and generous, and I am—I'm uh, so grateful that you've taken the time out to share your story, George.
1: Not at all. I, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity. Um, I also owe you a favour for the recent bit of firing that we did, uh, and uh, and you know it's, it's been great to to watch as as, as um, you know your own uh, activities have, have flowered so magnificently.
0: Cheers, George. Bye. The Best Work podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content, and more at cordco slash insights. Thanks for listening.